Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. This episode is brought to you by my course, Rest Assured. If you've been struggling with falling asleep, or staying asleep, or just not waking up feeling well-rested, you've come to the right place. Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia, or CBTI, is the gold standard intervention in the management of insomnia. Rest Assured is a digital course that walks you through CBTI, step-by-step, with everything you need to succeed. Each of the six weekly modules guides you through some important background information for the different techniques, explores the evidence-based techniques in detail, provides multiple examples of exercises so you can find the one that works for you, and reviews the work you've completed since the last module. And rest assured, it's just not another DIY left to your own devices, but rather, you get direct access to me, a board-certified sleep physician in twice-monthly office hours, where you can ask me face-to-face any questions you may have about the course material. So check out www.wellrestedmd.com slash RA to learn more. That's wellrestedmd.com slash RA. Or just head to the homepage and click on courses to learn more. Enjoy the episode. Hey there, friends and neighbors. You're listening to the Well Rested Podcast, episode number 50, Sleep Health. I'm your host, Dr. Joshua Lennon. Sleep health is a multidimensional pattern of sleep wakefulness adapted to individual, social, and environmental demands that promotes physical and mental well-being. Good sleep health is characterized by subjective satisfaction, appropriate timing, adequate duration, high efficiency, and sustained alertness during waking hours. Dr. Dan Bicey wrote those words for an article published in the journal Sleep in 2014. In today's episode, I'll explore what we mean by the term sleep health, examining the components of this pillar of overall health and wellness. In 2017, the NSF published the National Sleep Foundation Sleep Health Index, a way of trying to measure several of the components of sleep health by way of a questionnaire. It includes a lot of overlap of what Dr. Bicey had suggested a few years prior. The Sleep Health Index included several sub-indices, namely sleep quality, sleep duration, and disordered sleep. The sleep quality sub-index includes six items. Number one, the individual's overall rating of his or her sleep quality. Number two, the number of days in the last week that the individual felt well-rested. <clears throat> number three, the number of days in the last week that the individual had trouble falling asleep. Number four, the number of days in the last week the individual had trouble staying asleep. Number five, the number of days in the last week that the individual felt negatively impacted by lack of sleep. And number six, the number of days in the last week the individual fell asleep unintentionally. The sub-index for sleep duration included three items. First, a sleep score for weekdays. This sleep score is based on how well the individual's time in bed aligned with the recommendations for optimal sleep duration, namely 7-9 to hours in bed for adults. The weekday time spent in bed is calculated based on the average times reported by the individual over the last week. The second sleep duration item for the index is a sleep deficit score. The sleep deficit score is not based on the difference between the individual's total reported sleep and the NSF's recommended sleep durations, but rather based on the difference between weekday sleep duration and the amount each individual says that he or she needs to feel their best. The third and final sleep duration item is a sleep variability score. However, the variability score does not reflect variability in timing across the week and weekend, but rather it is based on the difference in weekday time in bed versus total time in bed on the weekends. The subindex for disordered sleep includes three items. First, how many days in the last week that the individual took a sleep medication, not distinguishing between prescription and over-the-counter. Second, 
whether or not the individual has ever been diagnosed with a sleep disorder by a physician. And number three, whether or not the individual has ever discussed his or her sleep with a doctor or other medical professional. So for the National Sleep Foundation, satisfaction with sleep, insomnia, sleepiness, time in bed, differences in duration from perceived need and differences across the week, along with any medicalization of sleep, all contribute to the overall sleep health index. And their published data show that Americans have an overall sleep health of 76 out of 100. Is that a C or is there a grading curve? I'm not really sure what an 86 out of 100 would look like, or a 66 out of 100. But what this index does allow is for comparison over time of the same group, as well as comparison between different groups. But their sleep health index is not the only way of defining sleep health. In fact, there's a specific feature that has been left out of the NSF's sleep health index, and that is the role of circadian health. Don't get me wrong, duration, quality, diagnosed or self-treated sleep disorders, these are all important and should factor in. But circadian wellness is finally getting its well-deserved seat at the table. Just last month, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine released an official position statement. And just like last fall's position statement regarding daylight savings and the failure it's been for human health and wellness, it's something that we in the sleep health community have taken for granted. The lengthy position paper can be easily summarized as this. Sleep is essential to health. The end. That's it. Not optional, not conditional, not a luxury, but essential to health. And as we've discussed so often before, going all the way back to episode one, not all sleep is created equal. Specifically, the board of directors for the American Academy of Sleep Medicine write, quote, healthy sleep requires adequate sleep duration, appropriate timing, regularity, the absence of sleep disorders, and good quality, end quote. Noting that both subjective and objective measures of quality are important. So the key differences here with the AASM's working definition of sleep health includes these circadian factors of timing and regularity which are absent from the NSF Sleep Health Index. So let's tackle each of these one by one. Duration, timing, regularity, sleep disorders, and quality of sleep. For duration, we started discussing this all the way back in episode one, both that you can have too little and too much sleep. For adults, the recommended time in bed, the opportunity for sleep, is seven to nine hours. Getting too little sleep causes all sorts of maladies. But we also see for individuals getting more than nine hours of sleep, an association with all sorts of health risks, including stroke, and mortality. In episode 48, we saw how insufficient sleep duration affected driving performance, somebody's crash risk, and even their culpability if they do end up in a crash. In episode 13, we saw how with daylight savings, the loss of just one hour of sleep can strongly affect someone's safety, risk of car crashes, and even heart attacks. We haven't discussed pediatric sleep duration recommendations that much, but here they are specifically. For infants from age 4 months to 12 months, they should be achieving about 12 to 16 hours of sleep per 24 hours. This includes naps. For toddlers aged 1 to 2 years, they should be sleeping 11 to 14 hours for a 24-hour period, including naps. In this preschool age of 3 to 5 years, kids should be achieving 10 to 13 hours of sleep per 24-hour days, including naps. For young school-aged children between the ages of 6 and 12 years old, they should be achieving 9 to 12 hours of sleep per 24-hour basis. And for adolescents between 13 and 18 years old, they should be achieving 8 to 10 hours per 24-hour day of sleep. For the issue of timing, we started discussing this all the way back in episode 11. Timing of wake and sleep are some of the most important factors for our circadian rhythm, especially what time we wake up in the morning and get exposed to that first daylight. In episodes 13 on daylight savings, episode 12 on screen use, we saw how light affects the timing of sleep, which was explored even more deeply in episode 4. In episode 22, we saw how delayed timing has an effect on all sorts of things, from athletic performance, 
not just an entire team's wins and losses, such as the NBA, the NFL, and the NHL, but even individual athletes' performances, such as points, shooting percentage, rebounds, and time spent riding the bench. We saw that there is an excessive cancer risk from abnormal timing with shift work. In teens, we see that delayed sleep and wake timing increases the risk not just for depression, but even suicidal thoughts. Delayed sleep and wake timing is associated with worse self-control, ADHD symptoms, and increased sedentary behavior. We see worse control of blood sugar after accounting for age, weight, and medications. Among those with delayed sleep timing, they have a harder time losing weight versus those with standard or even earlier sleep and wake timing. But it's not just timing that's important, but consistency of timing. An aligned circadian clock is important. A consistently aligned clock is even more so. We explored this in episode 13 on daylight savings. We explored this more deeply in episode 23 on social jet lag. This is essential what happens when you keep one schedule during the work week or school week, and then something else entirely on your days off, which almost always means that you're staying up later on the weekends and sleeping in later. Some data suggests that even after accounting for age, sex, sleep duration, and sleep timing, the only predictor of ADHD scores as a whole, as well as impulsivity on its own, was social jet lag, this irregular sleep-wake syndrome. Irregular sleep timing from social jet lag is associated with worse grades in college, worse school behavior even in preschoolers. Social jet lag and irregular sleep rhythms are associated with impulsive and risky behaviors in teenagers, including drinking, binge drinking in particular, smoking, vaping, and cannabis use. Social jet lag has even been found to correlate strongly with severity of depression in teenagers, seasonal depression, and anxiety. Irregular sleep and wake rhythms have been shown to royally mess with your metabolism. Even in children between 8 and 12 years old, irregular sleep schedules have been shown to increase body mass index, the metric of obesity. Irregular sleep schedules was associated with sugar and insulin levels and markers of unhealthy cholesterol, even in young children. In adolescents and young adults, multiple studies demonstrate the increase in obesity from an irregular sleep schedule, even after accounting for several other risk factors, including total sleep duration. Adults too, just like the young children, have been shown to suffer worse sugar regulation and worse cholesterol when they have an irregular sleep-wake schedule. This may be partly due to the fact that irregular sleep schedules like social jet lag are associated with poor dietary choices. Those with an irregular sleep schedule consume fewer fruits and vegetables, substituting in more carbs and fats, more likely to skip breakfast and cram more calories overall into a shorter time period during the day, leading to worsening weight gain. For this category of sleep disorders, it's probably referring to the categories that exclude disorders of sleep timing and sleep duration, of which there are a few. I talk about insomnia just about every week, and we discussed the issue of sleep disorder breathing back in episode 2 and again in episodes 40 and 46. In episode 34, I discussed restless leg syndrome, also known as Willis-Eckbaum disease. There are other sleep-related movement disorders as well, like periodic limb movement disorder and rhythmic movement disorder. There are the disorders of central hypersomnolence, like narcolepsy. And there are parasomnias, like sleepwalking, sleep paralysis, and REM sleep behavior disorder. Any and all of these can contribute to one's sleep health. Sleep quality we started addressing all the way back in episode 1. Sleep quality can be measured by sleep efficiency, the total time spent to sleep, divided by the total time spent in bed. And normal sleep efficiency is about 90%. So even if you spend about 45 minutes total, between the time it takes to fall asleep and any time spent awake across the night, that's still considered normal if you've got about 7 plus hours in bed every night. Sleep quality is also affected by your sleep stage proportion. We should be spending about half of the night in high quality sleep, of N3 or slow wave sleep, and rapid eye movement sleep. The more light sleep or moderate sleep that we get, disproportionately, the lower the quality of sleep. 
Sleep quality can also be measured by how many arousals or awakenings we have across the night. A normal sleeper may experience about 5 to 10 arousals per hour that they are asleep. But experiencing more than 15 of these arousals per hour indicates that there is some problem with sleep quality. Consolidation also affects our sleep quality. Having a single chunk, an opportunity of 7 to 9 hours to get sleep, leads to far higher sleep quality than polyphasic sleep, or when trying to sleep in two or more different episodes. Sleep quality can also be measured with new computer techniques, including looking at delta power, the cap rate, and the odds ratio product. Lastly, when talking about sleep health, it's important to incorporate wake health. This final category can be simplified as an expression of how easily one falls asleep during the day. Most commonly, we track this with something called the Epworth Sleepiness Scale. It's a questionnaire, really a list of eight different scenarios, asking the subject the likelihood of falling asleep on a scale of zero to three. The situations include driving or riding as a passenger in a car, sitting down after lunch, or reading. Objectively, we measure wakefulness with a couple different sleep studies, as discussed in episode 38, the MSLT and the MWT. In one test, the patient is lying down in bed and asked not to try to stay awake. We measure how quickly he or she falls asleep. The quicker the onset of sleep, the sleepier the patient. The counterpart is the MWT, or the Maintenance of Wakefulness Test. Rather than being in the bed, the patient is sitting upright in a chair in a dark, quiet room. And rather than being asked to avoid fighting off sleep, we ask the patient to specifically try to stay awake, to maintain wakefulness. Each of these tests involves several different trials, typically five opportunities in the MSLT and four opportunities in the MWT, to get an average indication of how sleepy a patient is, or how effectively they can stay awake. But the more important issue is the implication for wakefulness, both in quality of life for an individual as well as the health consequences for the sleep disorders. So not just whether feeling poorly rested makes you grouchy, or too tired to say yes to a late movie or an outing with friends, but also whether someone is suffering from heart disease, or cancer, or anxiety, or high blood pressure, or ADHD, or diabetes, or memory loss, or any of the dozens of major health problems that sleep disorders can cause, and are felt during wakefulness, seemingly removed from the problems of sleep. So to summarize, there is no one clear-cut definition that everyone adheres to when using the term sleep health. There are varying working definitions in the scientific community, clinical sleep medicine community, and in common understanding. But a reasonable definition of sleep health includes several core components. These include duration, timing, regularity, sleep disorders, and quality of sleep. And often something about how the yin affects the yang, about wakefulness, the quality of wakefulness, or the degree of sleepiness during intended wake hours of the day. We know that insufficient sleep duration is problematic for growth and development and for functioning of children and adults alike. We know that timing of sleep, especially later timing, delayed sleep and delayed wake, are associated with poor outcomes. We know that irregular sleep is problematic, such as social jet lag, where one keeps a different sleep-wake schedule during the weekdays from weekends, or chaotic and unpredictable irregular sleep-wake schedule. We know that sleep disorders of all kinds, most importantly sleep disorder breathing, but also insomnia and restless legs, carry with them significant risks for life and limb. We know that the quality of sleep, including how efficiently we sleep given our time in bed, the architecture or the proportion of different sleep stages, the number of microarousals, and other newer metrics of the brain sleep significantly predict function and dysfunction. And your satisfaction with sleep, how rested you feel, how fatigued or sleepy you feel, and what else is going on with your health, all those comorbidities for which your sleep holds some responsibility, that too is important in grading one's sleep health. And I hope as you work your way through these brief episodes and hear more about these various aspects of sleep and sleep health, 
that you'll come to value the role that your own sleep health plays in how you live your life. I've got a little freebie for you, so if you head over to wellrestedmd.com day, you can get a free cheat sheet to a day in the life of the well-rested, including some specific best practices to get that good snooze. That's wellrestedmd.com D-A-Y. Be sure to hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player to get all the latest episodes. Leave a review and head over to wellrestedmd.com for more information. Thanks for listening.